Coming up on today's show, a look back at the first full year of the Stone On Air podcast, both the tour stops and the weekly dose. My name is Brian Stone. I appreciate you finding the show. This is volume one of a two-part podcast. On this particular episode, we'll talk to people like the incredible, legendary Wayne White. I made a show called Mrs. Kabobble's Caboose in 1985, which is still on in some PBS markets in the South. Wow. I took that with me back up in the winter of 86, back up to New York City. I took that portfolio, and that's how I got the peewee job. The most viral man in the Southeast, local musician and online content creator whose work this year has accumulated literally tens and tens of millions of online views and interactions. It's Nick Lutzko. So I basically looked at, I, I, I scanned through every tweet he's made since he was elected president, which is a lot, and I compiled a list of the 50 whiniest tweets. And then from that list, I picked my favorite. Formerly of WUTC, Jackie Helbert. The story picked up the most traction. It was like, they said it was like the most web traffic news story that we'd done. And they're like, you did a great job. And, and we, this is what we want you to do. And then I started getting messages like, did you identify yourself? That kind of thing. And I got an email where my manager got email from the administration of the university asking all these questions about me, basically. So as soon as that happened, then they got an email. I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be bad. Talking about privacy on the Internet and net neutrality before it was cool with Adam McElhaney. The primary idea for the website was you know, to purchase these these congressmen and legislators and senators' web histories and put them online for everybody to see to show them what it would be like, what it's like for us to have our privacy violated and taken away from us and and founder of the tennessee cannabis coalition cecily friday our primary focus is to educate lawmakers and the public about the public safety and health uh, data specific to cannabis now as far as we're concerned all cannabis use is medicinal we all have an endocannabinoid system we are all hardwired for cannabis we make our own endogenous cannabinoids so you know this plant is 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 you know a, a critical part of our wellness it's been one hell of a year. This is part one of a look back of 2017. What the hell is that? What would you say you do here? It's Stone's Weekly Dose. It's very hard to say my name correctly. You're like, Brian! Yeah, Brian! <laughs> What's your deal, man? Well, you know what us ultra-liberals say. When it comes to drugs, lies are okay. Your midweek download destination. Finally, it's cool to be a Chattanooga. Finally, it's cool to embrace this city. When some of us have been saying this for 25 years... Mic drop. Turn off the podcast. It's Stone's Weekly Dose. Don't die. Welcome in. This is not the Weekly Dose, actually. I just haven't put together a better generic open so i decided to just go with the weekly dose open my name is brian stone first of all right off the bat i apologize for the delay in getting you the look back at the year 2017 all in all turned out to be a pretty damn good year and i'll have a documentation over two-part series i'll tell you more about that in seconds So this one's going to drop, as they say, on the 30th, kind of late in the evening. So it'll be available on New Year's Eve. Then I'll be off to Nashville to watch the Titans. Win and we're in, baby. Win and we're in. And then the Weekly Dose will be returning for the first Wednesday of January. And then every Wednesday for the rest of the year. And then part two of this look back 
podcast will be towards the tail end of the first week of January. Yes, ideally, you ask the consultants, you do things that would make the most sense. This would have come out the final week of December instead of the very end of December and the beginning of January. But screw the consultants. I wanted some damn time off, and I didn't feel like editing and putting all these things together. This is not a mail-it-in kind of project. To just sit down and do a podcast for you real quick, that takes a couple hours tops, no big deal. To comb through hours of audio and put together a two-plus-hour-long, two-part audio production is actually pretty damn difficult and very time consuming. So I but I do think it's cool and I do think it's worth doing and it it kind of gives me the opportunity to give me a reminder of man what a fun year. What what good conversations and what cool people come from Chattanooga cuz everybody that's on this podcast both parts either talked about or talked to actually had a discussion with is a Chattanoogan and uh it's it's pretty cool. So I hope you guys enjoy it. The highlight of my career so far is my conversation with Wayne White. He's a local, uh, well, he, he's from Chattanooga. He hasn't been around here since uh, since the 80s, but he came back to do the Wayne-O-Rama. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. Just go back and look. But my conversation with him back in February when I set up and, and, and did the show at his exhibit down in Rossville Avenue in downtown Chattanooga was an absolute thrill. I don't get very nervous anymore when I do things like this, when I talk in front of people, when I do radio shows and podcasts. I'm not really nervous at all. I was borderline terrified before I sat down with this guy after I realized how big of a true national treasure this guy is. So we're just getting started, and might as well start right there with Wayne White. This is a look back at the Stone On Air podcast for 2017. Yeah, it's a, I've been doing art. Uh, we'll, we'll go with installation. I've been doing them... Um, um, for about um, seven years now, I, I travel around the country, and I'm, I go to different cities, and I always base my uh, installation, the work on uh, the local history of the place. You know, just because I love history. Sure. And uh, it's a ready-made content, and it's a great story. So, like, I went to Oklahoma and I made a rodeo. I went to Houston and I did a giant head of George Jones because George got his start in Houston. I went to a little town in York, Pennsylvania. Uh, York, Pennsylvania, did a Civil War uh, installation because there was a big uh, invasion there during the Civil War. And now, uh, I so I naturally wanted to come back to my hometown and do one about Chattanooga, you know, because uh, that's my favorite stories that's my favorite history and it's the place i grew up yeah you went to uh hickson high school and um we'll get to to some of that in a minute but um i've, I've watched some interviews with you so i don't want you to have to answer the same questions over and over again but um i, I know the story of your first grade teacher t- yeah. telling in front of the class uh which could be frightening for people to be singled that you know singled out and say hey but i mean it was a, the ultimate compliment that this you know this young man this young boy is going to be an artist and yes. at that point you you realize that that was something you were always going to do. That's an awful young age to, 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 to figure something like that out. But I highly doubt that you were thinking about how you were going to make a living the rest of your life or anything along those lines no. at that age. What At what point did you realize that this is something that is not necessarily something for fun or uh, a way just for some extra cash on the side, that this is something you could actually do for a living for maybe forever. <laughs> Did it take a long time? I mean, it didn't take very long at all because I was already hustling kids' lunch money in the first grade. <laughs> 
doing drawings for them. Well, I mean, I could. <laughs> I would do drawings of Bob Brandy, which I still am doing in my own way. I got a big Bob Brandy sculpture here. I do drawings for them and, and, and charge them a nickel or a dime and stuff, and I got in trouble for it. Very entrepreneurial of you yeah. at a very young age. Right away, I knew that it had some kind of power and it, that could be uh, monetized, as they say. But I, 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 uh, I, that's a good question. When did it really dawn on me? I guess, I, and I guess that is an honest answer. I always believed that I could do it for a living. Wow. That's all I ever wanted to do. And uh, So you went to Hickson High School. You graduated yeah. from MTSU. Um, I actually I know Murfreesboro very well. Um, yeah. Back in the late 90s, uh, it was dubbed by Rolling Stone or Spin or something as like the next Seattle um, I, in some little blurb, you know. And uh-huh. so all my friends were all musicians and everybody went to Murfreesboro. I was called my alma mater. I didn't actually go to school. I just lived across from the Murphy Center. I did too. Uh, over there on Division Street. I lived near there. And, yeah. uh, and so I hung out with everybody and did college kind of things. I just didn't have to wake up and go to class in the morning. So I'm pretty <laughs> familiar with MTSU. But um, so you went out as soon as you got done at MTSU in uh, 1979. 1980, that's when I was born, um, Wayne White, my guest on the Stone on Air podcast, you were off to New York. Yeah. That quickly. I was. I, I, I spent a year in Nashville in 1980, and then in 81, I moved to New York. I had seen a magazine called Raw Magazine, and uh, it was like the new generation of underground comics, something I'd always kind of been interested in. I was very disillusioned with trying to make paintings and sell them because that was not very encouraging in Nashville in 1980 to be an artist. And so I, I, I wanted to go back into cartooning, something I always loved as a kid and something I did in, uh, growing up for school newspapers and stuff. So I went to New York to be a cartoonist in 81. And that was, uh, that's kind of, you answered my question a little bit next to say, what was your passion at that time? Was it uh, illustrations? Uh, it was, I think, an editorial cartoons kind of thing, no, maybe? It was, or? it was comic strips. Comic strips. Uh, alternative comics, as you would say. It was the beginning of an era we're still in, the dawn of the graphic novel and uh, uh, comics for adults and, you know, and serious themes. And that's what Raw Magazine meant, represented to me. And, also, as to be an illustrator, also I could always draw, and I wanted to. Again, I wanted to hustle some money from it. I wanted to get that uh, lunch money. Well, so we move into uh, closer to the mid '80s, and how does the Pee Wee Herman show get on your radar? Is it something you had noticed or heard about, or, or how did that become even an idea? Well, I'd been in New York about three years, and I finally started getting work, freelance work for magazines. And then, lo and behold, Tennessee called again. My friend in Nashville had gotten a job at a PBS station, and they needed a set designer and a puppet designer for a new kids' uh, music instruction show for the elementary school. Okay. And I got the job. I went back down to Nashville. I stayed for about four months. I made a show called Mrs. Kabobble's Caboose in 1985, which is still on in some PBS markets in the South. Wow. I took that with me back up in the winter of 86 back up to new york city i took that portfolio and that's how i got the peewee job um and uh was that that was basically the question <laughs> <laughs> that was basically the question i lost my train how, how many uh how many seasons were you working with, with i them? worked four seasons on peewee and that completely changed my life i can imagine i immediately be- 
got into television production and, and, and got away from magazines and illustration and comics and was fully immersed just overnight, literally. And started getting other jobs like Shining Time Station, uh, Peter Gabriel's Big Time Video, uh, Beekman's World, Riders. It, it went on and on for 25 years. Well, I'm going to come back to that in just a, just a minute. I want to fast forward, though. I'm going to kind of go out. Of, I'm doing this whole podcast out of order. I'm doing second, first, and third, last, and all this stuff. But I, so I'm going to jump ahead about 10, 12 years because I didn't know until I started looking around that there were, I didn't even know there was a Weird Al show. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I wasn't as much Pee Wee. I don't know why, but um, I've certainly watched it. You didn't. You had one of the voices in Pee Wee, too. I forgot about I that. I had several voices in Pee Wee. Several. Randy, Dirty Dog, Mr. Kite, Roger the Monster. But Weird Al, I loved. Loved. Still do. And I had no idea that, uh, that, that he had yeah. a TV show. Of course, this is what yeah. the theme song sounds like, as you would... Expect something by Weird Out of Sound, but it didn't last that long. No, it was a flop. It lasted like one run. I don't even think they reran it. I I worked on several think projects like that. Al had the goods. I don't know what. There just wasn't. It just didn't work out. I did the sets and puppets on that. Yeah, Yeah. I saw the the, like some of the the opens and things, and it's just like other styles of music or styles of art. I could now I can see where yours exactly is. I mean, I don't know if everything is always your design, but I can. There's certain things I can tell. Yep, that's Wayne. That's Wayne right there. (laughs) And I mean that is the ultimate compliment. Wayne White, my guest, recording the. The uh, podcast live to tape at his exhibit on 1800 Rossville Avenue. I'm going to take a quick break. One more go around. I do want to talk about those uh, music videos for a minute, and then I will yeah. get, get out of your way and let you get back to work. Thank you All for right. being down here. Quick break. Be right back. This is the most listened to, downloaded, and most easily accessible podcast in the city of Chattanooga. This is Stone on Air. More with Wayne White next. We're back with the Stone On Air podcast, recording live to tape down at Wainorama, downtown Chattanooga, on the south side, 1800 Rossville Avenue. The exhibit will be opening and open and changing and updating um, until September. Yes. So if you've been once, you can come again and you'll see something you didn't see the time before. The first time I was here was um, the open and uh, the opening that, you, that had a huge crowd. And there's a that was was that in September? That was in November. November. I thought yeah. it felt. I thought it was a little colder. And okay. um, and there's a lot new since then. There is. It's the part of the concept is that it keeps growing and changing, and getting better. Getting we're, better. We're going to talk to some of the people that you're they're volunteering with you and helping helping you work when you're in town. When you're not, um, you reside in Los Angeles. I do. I live in uh, L.A. Right smack dab in the middle of it. I, I'm from. I was born in Southern California, and I'm thinking about going out there later this year. I live I, in Los Feliz, which okay. is right next to Hollywood, between Hollywood and Silver Lake, up in the hills. I'm from um, originally Oceanside, California, just yep. just outside of San Diego, and absolutely incredibly amazing place that I beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, I think the cost of living got in my family's way, and we had to get out of there. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. It's not all that interesting, anyway. Wayne White, my guest. So MTV is two or three, four years old when you're starting to work with Pee Wee. When you were thinking about artists and things you're going to do, getting out of college, you, know, you, were, you were going to work for publications. Was TV 
that kind of design in your mind at all, or did that evolve from the, the Pee Wee Herman kind of experience? Well, I was always excited by cool stuff on TV, like any young person is, you know. Uh, but I never thought of, my, of myself doing it. I, uh, I kind of, <clears throat> I was doing my own homemade puppet shows for the longest, and I noticed that kind of aesthetic in the culture, like with Andy Kaufman and his funky yeah. prop humor. I even saw the original uh, Pee Wee show on HBO in like 78 or something. And it stunned me because it was very already. I was doing something similar already, you know. I didn't realize it was that old, 78. Yeah, yeah it was one of the first HBO comedy specials. Huh. And everybody kept, uh, it, it, and it was hard to see, fine, because you know, not many people had cable. Anyway, I was, it was in the air, what I was doing. And it was kind of reflected in the culture, not, but I never imagined myself working in television, no. What's, uh, I forgot to ask this earlier, what, what's uh, Paul Rubens like? Uh, Paul is very uh, low key. He's very low energy in person. He has a deep voice. Because that you know that character, he's not the character at all. Yeah. He doesn't carry that kind of energy. I mean, his uh, performance in in Blow, uh, the yeah. uh, I can't remember who did that movie, but early in the nineties um, was just incredible, and it gave yeah. me this whole new appreciation for him. And I mean, his role was just incredible, and he's done a lot of other things since then. But that's that's more of his. That's more of his energy level, that kind of low-key gotcha. guy, you know. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, okay, so MTV is, you know, again, is in, in its infancy. And how does, does a Peter Gabriel video get on your radar? Because I don't, I can only, I mean, I don't know what kind of music you listen to, but I don't know many people that don't at least appreciate Peter Gabriel at a pretty high level. He, yeah, he's a great guy, personally. But uh, I got the job simply because the, the director of the first season of Pee Wee, Steven Johnson, had done another amazing Peter Gabriel video called Sledgehammer. Sure, yeah. And, that, and through Sledgehammer, he got the Pee Wee job. And then a year roll, rolls by, and he gets an, a chance to do another one with Big Time. And because we knew each other from Pee Wee, he, I got the uh, art director job. This, this is a, maybe a question you probably can't answer at all, uh, or maybe you can. What Peter Gabriel had that run of doing videos like that he yeah. didn't do that that kind of stuff I mean, he's always a little flamboyant but he he, yeah. did, he didn't do that kind of stuff early and he hasn't done it as much since i first started listening to him in the early 90s with uh, digging in the dirt mm -hmm. is one of those kinds of out there videos and i, I always wondered was that just a, a, a artistic experimental stretch of his career or? well his early days with genesis they did a lot of Real weirdo theatrical. Did they? I might have just. Yeah. I, I know Phil Collins' Genesis better than I know Peter Gabriel's no, Genesis. No. Genesis started out as kind of a performance art kind of thing. Okay. They had costumes and puppets. So he's weirder than I gave him credit oh, for. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was always trying to uh, do something visual, too, along with the music in his early career. And that changed, I guess, as it went along. But yes, that one little stretch there, he really went for it. And I was lucky enough to, to jump on the wagon there as it came rolling by. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's incredible uh, work. And then what really caught my eye, because I am a child of the 90s and a huge grunge music fan, so all those bands I love, and um, Smashing Pumpkins video, which I hadn't seen in forever, um, yeah. and I forgot how cool it was. Yeah. Um, how, how did that come, come together with... with well, I got that pumpkins. job again through people I knew, people I worked with. That was directed by a husband and wife team, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. And I had known them uh, uh, socially in Hollywood. And uh, we had always wanted to work together. And they knew that 
at the time I was doing these these really kind of old-fashioned paintings. I was doing these big battle scenes that looked like they were from the 19th century, steamboats coming down the river. I was This was the phase that I was doing right before I started my word paintings. And they knew I was doing these old-timey 19th century images. And this video came up, and they had the concept of doing this antique 19th century Jules Verne steampunky kind of thing. And they knew that I could do that. And it, it came together nice. And uh, so, how, how does that when it's, someone comes up with a concept for something like that, a small film project like that, is it just they just give you kind of a basic thought, and then you kind of just create around that, and then you just you know maybe you run it by, hey, what do you think about this, that kind of thing, or is it like here's exactly what we want to do? Can you make it? Like we we specifically want to make a John Ross head. Can you make it? You know that's obviously pretty self-explanatory. A lot of the times for a project like that, it was very specific. They came to me and they said we we want to do our own version of George Millet's old movie, A Trip to the Moon. I, I don't know. That's what that. I read did. his name and, and looked him up for a French. Yeah, uh, French, a French filmmaker, yeah, yeah. very early pioneer. He made these really wild and crazy little science fiction movies in the nineteen oh one. And this Millet's Trip to the Moon is a very famous film. And they wanted to do a pastiche or takeoff of that for the pumpkins. So that was locked in place. But as far as the visuals go, there's freedom, you know. So, and I, and I loved that. I would give them variations on the spaceship and then they would pick one. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of freedom as, to, to do my own version of it, things. In the filming process for, for a, a project like that, how much interaction do you have with the artists themselves, have, like Peter or, or Billy Corgan or whoever? With Peter, uh, I had a lot of interaction. He was in on a lot of the early meetings, and I showed him my ideas and storyboards, and, and uh, we, had a, we had a nice time um, interacting. And I really liked him a lot. He's really yeah, I bet. one I of my favorite people to work with. But uh, with the pumpkins, I didn't meet them at all. Really? I, well, I thought about that, especially because technology had, had increased by that point yeah. to where maybe you didn't you could all work remotely is what I thought probably on that one. I Yeah, I wasn't around for the days that they shot. I was just around for, like, you know, scenes they weren't in. Well, it's incredible work. Wayne White is my guest. We'll wrap it up here in a minute. I know you got Truly a highlight of my career interviewing the great Wayne White and doing it down at his exhibit that uh, has since closed up shop and the uh, Hunter Museum uh, exhibit has closed up as well. Hopefully we'll be able to get him back into town for another exhibit into the future. This is the best of 2017. I've been trying not to say best of. A look back at the first full year of the podcast. People who have listened to me on the radio and on the podcast for years know that I'm a big Nick Let's Go guy. He joined me many times this year. This was one of them. It's a less than a minute long. It was before the election was over. And these are songs he puts together using only words from Donald Trump's tweets. It's a disgusting and corrupt media covered me honestly. It didn't put us many to the words I say. I'd be beating Hillary by 20%. My rallies aren't covered properly by the media. They never discuss the real message. And never show crowd ties or enthusiasm. It's not freedom.
that was the first Evo Trump by Nick Lutzko and Super Deluxe, and it got a lot of views. Well, the newest one is uh, the return of President Emo Trump. It's a little bit longer, and if you think about in the early 2000s, emo, punk-ish, rock-ish was real feelings-oriented, and it would, it, would, it, it would go from one extreme to the other, from I'm so brokenhearted, I don't know what to do, to like I'm the king of the world, and it, would, it, would, it, it was really kind of bipolar. That's the kind of concept of this. This is a snippet of the new one. It's longer, and you really need to see the video to understand it, and then we'll talk to Nick Let's go on the other side. This is President Emo Trump that has gathered millions of views and gone viral on the Stone On Air podcast. Just had a very open and successful presidential election. Now professional protesters decided by the media are protesting. Very So that's just a snippet of the uh, the newest emo Trump on the line with me right now on the brand new installed highly sophisticated phone system is a Nick Let's Go. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Thanks for having me, Brian. You've now done some work here and you've gotten a couple of your new tracks, your emo Trump tracks that are going viral. But how does that compare to being the first phone guest on the uh, the new system here on the Stone on Air podcast? It's got to be comparable, right? It simply doesn't compare. <laughs> Real quick, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Tell me about Super Deluxe itself, because it, I, I didn't know about it until your involvement. Yeah, they're a media company based out of Los Angeles. They are owned by Turner Broadcasting. To the best of my knowledge, they're a sister company to Adult Swim. Okay, cool. Only they, they, at this moment, they exist purely on social. So it's kind of like a dark, twisted, weird version of BuzzFeed, in a way. And um, they just release really weird videos almost every day and Vic Burgers how I became introduced to them Vic Burgers a guy on Twitter and all other forms of committee who takes Trump speeches he he really gained a lot of notoriety from the debates he was uh remixing the debates and editing those and he does stuff with Chuck Checker and Jim Baker and all these other bizarre celebrities and all of his work is hilarious and I followed him pretty closely and that's what got me introduced to Super Deluxe and um, actually tweeting at Vic is ultimately how I ended up working with Super Deluxe. So it kind of came full circle in that regard. So they're basically just a, an online digital content creation company, for lack of a more specific way of putting it, which there are countless amounts of those out there, but they've got a lot of pull. They've obviously, you said, under the Turner Broadcasting umbrella. Let's just get right to the, because you've done a few different things for them. Some have stuck a little bit more than others. But the, the two, and the more specifically, the newest one, are the, the Trump tweets, the emo Trump. Wh- whose idea was that? Did, did you guys collaborate on that, or how did that come together? No, that was my uh, producer Jason's idea. That was actually the first job that I did specifically for Super Deluxe. <clears throat> I had kind of been bugging them for a couple weeks, just letting them know that I wrote songs and would love to contribute any way I could. And he uh, emailed me one evening. He was like, hey, Trump's tweets have been super emo this whole day. Is there any way you could make a song out of it? Like uh, early 2000s. That one, we were going almost more for a pop punk kind of vibe, like Blink-182 or 
Teenage Wasteland kind of vibe, or Teenage Dirtbag, whatever that freaking song is. So, yeah, I really, you know, I had a lot to prove for that first one, so I, like, stayed up all night. I think I sent them back a finished product within, like, 12 hours, and they were thrilled with it. And the response was huge. It was, I've, I've gone on to do, you know, eight or so videos with them, and that one by far had the biggest response online, but this newest one kind of blew that one out of the water. So Yeah, the first one is a, actually a little little bit catchier, if you ask me. It's got a great uh, just right. kind of grab you, too, but it's real short. It's barely a minute long, the newest sure. one. And, and that's really brevity is king on, on you know social media and on the Internet. You don't want to you know spend a lot of time. You'll lose people's attention. But the newest one's incredible, too. How, how do you do you go through the tweet, the Twitter t- timeline, and you pick that out, or does your producer and you together do that, or does BuzzFeed say, hey, check this? Not BuzzFeed, but uh, Super Deluxe. Do you yeah. all work together on that? How's that work? So, yeah, that first one, it was just like pick a litter from the, the tweets of the day, but with this newest one, he said, I think it's time to bring back Emo Trump. Um, so I basically looked at I, – I, I scanned through every tweet he's made since he was elected president, which is a lot, and I compiled a list of the 50 whiniest tweets. And then from that list, I picked my favorites. And from that list, uh, Jason highlighted some of his favorites, and that's kind of how we came up with products. Well, it's uh, it's 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 cool stuff, man. It's funny slash creative. I enjoy it. Nick, let's go in line with me on the Stone on Air podcast on the brand new, highly sophisticated phone system. There is a chance you have not heard of Clyde Stubblefield before. It wasn't long ago that I hadn't heard of him either. A Chattanooga native, a truly legendary drummer who played with James Brown and amongst many, many others over the years, created one of the most sampled drum beats in the history of all genres of music. He died back in February, and I put together this little mashup to kind of give you an idea of how these samples were used. This is a look back at the 2017 Stone On Air podcast. Clyde Stubblefield's the epitome of the funk. When I sat down, I just started playing a beat, something simple, and everybody joined in. And then Brown came in and put the lyrics to it, and it was called Funky Drummer. Next thing I know, all the rap artists was using it to, uh, to sample it. I went, okay, why didn't they choose something else like uh, Cold Sweat or uh, I Got the Feeling or something, you know, but they chose that. So... <laughs> So that was Clyde Stubblefield himself about five or six years ago talking about when he finally realized that his drum beat had become such a regularly used sample. So I started looking at how many bands or artists, hip-hop, rock, pop, whatever genre, have actually used this sample. And it turns out that the number I came up with was 1,366 commercial recordings were produced and released for profit using at some point a sample of that drum beat from that James Brown's tune, Funky Drummer, back in 1970. Over 1,300 recordings. So you think, okay, these are a bunch of just cut-rate hip-hop artists, right? Or a bunch of stuff we've never heard of. Well, yeah, there's plenty of that. There's plenty of stuff you've never heard of. And there's plenty of stuff you have heard of, including like Nine Inch Nails, and they did a lot of remix stuff. So I didn't count that because they did lots of experimental remix things. Several others, Shanae O'Connor was in there with some remix stuff. I left those alone. I used just the original recordings, and I picked out five real quick. And we'll start with one of the bigger explosions from the very early 90s, Dr. Dre featuring Snoop Dogg, This Is Let Me Ride, and the sample from Clyde Stubblefield's Funky Drummer. And it starts right here. With all the niggas saying. 
So I'll play this, and then in the middle will be the actual drum beat from 1970. That's the original recording. Basically seamless. So I move on to another huge hip-hop act and performer from the 90s and all the way for a couple of decades, LL Cool J. Mama said, knock you out. And this one goes pretty much throughout the entire song. the original recording. <laughs> Keep in mind, I am the uh, my own producer, so I only have anybody to bitch at if I say, hey, that wasn't the best uh, audio editing you could have done there on the Stone On Air podcast. My name is Brian Stone. These are sample beats from Clyde Stubblefield, a Chattanooga native who died last week. So, all right, so we move away from hip-hop, and this is more of an experimental rock, hip-hop kind of mix, Sublime, which could have been one of the biggest bands in the history of rock and roll, if not for a heroin overdose from their lead singer in the 1990s. This is a Grateful Dead song called Scarlet Begonias. You'll recognize it here in a minute. And this drum beat goes throughout the entire song. That's from 1970. So you can look at that and think, all right, well, where's some stuff that got really big numbers, like stuff that the mainstream's heard of? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because there's plenty of that as well. From back in the 1990s, this is Freedom 90 from the late and legendary pop international superstar, George Michael, using that Clyde Stubblefield sample on this tune. It almost became at some point, especially in the 1990s, that if you didn't sample Clyde Stubblefield's drum beat from Funky Drummer, then you weren't you hadn't made it yet. It was almost some kind of rite of passage for a long time. Maybe it's gone by the wayside now. I'm not sure. I've just started doing research on this in the last week. So one more clip here to get still not very contemporary because she hasn't done any music in a long time, at least not any mainstream music. And speaking of things I used to think was lame that I realized wasn't lame at all, Alanis Morissette is one of the most talented women musicians in the history of rock and roll. And I was always like, oh, man, she sucks. Alanis Morissette sucks. Well, it's a little more subtle in this version of uh, of this sample of her hit in the 1990s, 
Head over feet. This is Alanis Morissette on the Stone on Air podcast. Starts right here. Back to 1970. <laughs> Again, there you had to you had to listen a little closer. It was a small sample. Point being is it is incredible that this man from night from Chattanooga, Tennessee, who had an extraordinary career as a sessions drummer meaning that sessions players basically mean you have the talent you have the chops to be able to play music at a high level but you might not necessarily have the creative genius that it takes to make music not just necessarily once but consistently to be able to be that kind of top star those people are in very high demand and that's what Clyde Stubblefield ended up being his entire career because he was that good from a talent level and he just happened to stumble into a drum beat that isn't all that intricate, that isn't all that even that good really. It just happened to fall into a time period in the late 80s and into the 90s that made it iconic and virtually to a certain degree revolutionized a certain kind of music in the late 20th century and into the 21st century. And he's from right here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My name is Brian Stone. This is the Stone Honor Podcast. It's the most downloaded. It's the most easily accessible. It's the most listened to podcast in the city. Like, share, and always love. Rate and review if you get a chance. And always remember, do not be a fraud. The truth is incredibly easy to remember. And every single week, this space gets bigger And I ask you for the rest of this year and the rest of time to continue to watch it. We'll talk to you again next week. See you. The Walking Dead fans will appreciate this. If you're not a fan of the show, it won't mean a whole lot to you, but it's only a couple of minutes long. There was a caller in season two of the Talking Dead show on AMC, Bob from Chattanooga. Very odd phone call that quickly became viral and kind of a hit amongst the cult following of the show. Well, somebody claiming to be Bob from Chattanooga called back in in this year's season of The Walking Dead. And just for the fun of it, I decided to put together a little mashup. These are those phone calls and interactions along with the drive-by trucker song simply titled Bob. I think we have a caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Thank you for taking my call. This is Bob from Chattanooga. What is the the coming. The hour is coming. All that are in the grave shall hear his voice. There seems to be no room in this mockery. Oh, did we cut him off? I was kind of hoping we get some sort of weird prophecy. Bob goes to church every Sunday. Every Sunday that the fish ain't bite. Hello, Bob. Bob <laughs> kind of wanted to see where that was going. I was going to let it play out. He likes to drink a beer too every now and again. He always had more dogs than he ever had friends. Bob ain't lying in the loaf. He might kneel, but he never bends over. That was awesome. Oh, we hung up. Well, we're either all about to die, but I do want to say thank you for representing my home state of Tennessee in a positive way. Wow. Wow. Oh, my God, what if it's happening now? We're here. We're here. 
That was awesome. That was, I am so excited. <laughs> we have not gotten phone bombed yet on wow. this show. That was, I thank you so much. I am so excited that this happened on our season finale. Bob's still got an antenna on a pole. Two channels coming, two more coming through. He used to watch the news, but he don't anymore. Ain't none of it new, it's the same as before. He figures all any of it's any good force, keeping everybody bored till there ain't nobody like Bob anymore. What is your name? Bob from Chattanooga. Wait, what? Are you like season two talking dead Bob from Chattanooga who called and said that the apocalypse was coming? Yeah, you jerks better not hang up on me this time. Oh my God, I missed you so much! Bob! Everyone wants to know, what's your deal, man? I don't know, man. I just kind of froze up the last time. Do you have a Twitter handle or some way that people can say hi to you? No, I don't do that Twitter thing, but there's some fake ones out there that ain't me. You are the real 100% true Bob. We'll have to have you back on the show at some point. Thank you so much. On the show? On the show. Well, maybe. This is Bob from Chattanooga. This is Bob from Chattanooga. One of the most famous people who's ever been on our show. Jackie Helbert was a reporter, producer, and content creator for WUTC 88.1 here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She recorded a vignette in Nashville at the state capitol, along with several students on a field trip from Cleveland, Tennessee. The nature of the reporting was on the quote-unquote bathroom bill. The radio station aired the piece several times and had it on their website. Political pressures from Nashville and the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga resulted in Jackie Helbert's termination from WUTC. This is my conversation with Jackie less than one week after that happened back in March. What I want to do here now is kind of back up on a timeline, if you would. Um, Mm -hmm. The trip you took with the kids, the high school kids from Cleveland, you went to Nashville with them and then recorded the events of the day. Mm -hmm. Give me your expectations of what you thought you were going to be getting out of that trip. Because this is a two-part question. We'll start with that because sometimes when you're on assignment or when you're putting together some kind of vignette or a little feature, you're not sure what you're going to get. What were your expectations when you left for that trip earlier this month? Yeah, I think it was around the 7th of of this month. I was expecting it... Well, like most of the stories I've heard about the bathroom bill, things like that, like you hear it from the perspective of the lawmakers. Sure. So I was really hoping that on this assignment that I would get a feel for people like the, the youth, the children who are being directly affected by the bill. And it just like when I heard that they were going up there to talk to lawmakers, it just really struck me. My God, that's so brave. I can't remember. I can't imagine being a teenager <laughs> and like going and talking to lawmakers about something like this. that's so sensitive and they're just like coming to terms with, you know, themselves anyway. So my expectations, I was thinking that I would just get like a sh- quick little sound bites that the politicians would be classic politicians would be, you know, really nice to the kids and say predetermined kind of things. I was shocked when I got there in, in Senator Bell's office and the things he said were like horrifying. <laughs> so. Okay, well, part two of that question, did you have a lot of discussion with stations management at WTC and what do you believe they're expectations were was it it was it even discussed much at length not much they gave me a lot of freedom they you know trusted me to do stories i told them i think this could be a really good story maybe we could pitch it to national npr because you don't hear it from this perspective um so like we said that that was basically about it like they gave me a lot of freedom to do whatever we didn't plan it out or anything going into it. i just let them know what i was doing and they're like okay 
Well, we'll get to more on that here in a minute. I guess that's good and bad. It's good they're giving you the freedom. It might not be as good as because they didn't maybe spell out what they were, what their expectations might have been. And again, we'll get to more of that in a minute. But you mentioned early on, and it's been documented without any confusion, that you did admit to, to not properly ide- identifying yourself. So that was from the very, very beginning. There is no confusion there. But just out of pure curiosity, first, before I ask the question, how long were, were you, say, by the time you touched down in Nashville and started going to the Capitol and time you left, about what kind of time frame was that? The bus got there at like 10 o'clock or 9.30, and then we went in with Senator Bell, like I think at 10.15. It wasn't very long. And you guys were back in Cleveland and Chattanooga area by mid-afternoon, maybe? I think it was like... I feel like it was like 7 o'clock, actually. It was kind of late. My point being is is that while technically it might not have been that long of a time, if you're rolling tape mm-hmm. for a majority of this time, you probably have oh, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of minutes and many hours of, of, oh, of yeah. audio. Did any, I got reams of audio. <laughs> did, and I'll come back to that in a minute as well. Did, did anybody ask you? what you were doing or why you were recording? No. I mean, I mean, from people, just random people on the street to maybe a secretary, did anybody, no. they didn't even, they, nobody even asked. No, no, no. It was, it was glaringly obvious. Almost, my setup was almost like cartoonish. I, I kept the windscreen, like the fuzzy dead cat on it. We were indoors. I didn't need it, but I kept it on there to kind of even make it more obvious. I had like bright clothes on, a huge lanyard with my press pass and stuff that says WDC, a big bag that said public radio. Like it was so obvious why I was there. And there was like other press there. We did a press conference and I Facebook live streamed it and I recorded that. Um, so no, no, no. It was super obvious what I was doing. When I met Senator Bell, like shook his hand. I had to move my recorder stuff out of the way, made eye contact with Brooks because he came in the room after the kids were already in there. So it was just like, it couldn't have been more obvious what I was doing. So nobody asked because they didn't need to. No. They didn't need to ask. Exactly. <laughs> they already knew the answer to the question. I was standing up, pointing the mic back and forth between them and the kids. Like, it was ridiculously obvious. Formerly of WUTC, Jackie Helbert is my guest on the Stone on Air podcast. Just a couple more and I'll get out of your way. I've noticed it is all over the almost country, regionally for sure. The Washington Post picked up the story. Mm-hmm. ABC, if, I, if you haven't seen it already today, Clay Bennett from the Chattanooga Times Free Press, you're the next editorial cartoon. At least your name's in it. If you don't mind, and you can give me as little of this or as much of this as you'd like, I'm maybe on a need-to-know basis might be running thin here. But the timeline of the firing, their approach, mm-hmm. the way they handled it, was were they really definitive at first? Did it take a handful of days? I mean, did you feel like, oh, no, I'm in trouble? Like, If you don't mind, as much or as little as you could tell me oh, about sure. kind of the timeline of the firing. Oh, yeah, I don't mind. I'm being very open about this. Let's see. So the story picked up the most traction. It was like they said it was like the most web traffic news story that we'd done. And they're like, you did a great job. And, and we this is what we want you to do. It was like two days later. So that was around the the 13th of March. And, and then my boss mentioned, hey, Mike Bell called, but we don't know what he wanted yet. And then I started getting messages like, did you identify yourself? That kind of thing. And I got an email where my managers got emails from the administration of the university asking all these questions about me, basically. So as soon as that happens, then they got an email. I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be bad because these are like this, you know, <laughs> this is really controversial, and I'm a newbie. Like, I'm a nobody, and if they're upset about this, I can't imagine how that this is going to go well for me. And within less than a week, you were fired. Yeah, I was fired on Tuesday a week today, like the, so yeah. the 21st. Today we're recording this on the 28th, and that would have been a week ago on the 21st. I first caught wind of it that next day on a Wednesday. So final thing here that goes back to what I was asking you about how much footage you might have had. 
What is interesting about this story is that every other day there seems to be like a new little element to an already kind of the same information except for oh and then this is in here now too and oh and now this is in here now too and the one that caught my eye the most is that i'm getting this from the nashville scene the uh, nashville's alternative weekly is vice chancellor of marketing and communications uh george heddleston said and later after the termination that you had audio that had quote edited comments from brooks that seemed to fit her story end quote Mm-hmm. Now, out of hundred, yes. hundreds of minutes and hours of footage of, of audio, I should say, clearly there's editing. I know this. You know this. This is what we do, and we do it well. Your thoughts on on that addition later mm-hmm. in the story? Yeah. Um, so they fired me specifically for not identifying myself. Like it was never brought up that there was an issue with the content of the story. The story went through multiple edits with my boss and my boss's boss, who are great seasoned journalists, just to make sure that it was. Because you have to take audio out, things are too long or whatever, but they want to make sure everything was put in context and fair and all that stuff. So honestly, the first time I heard about it was anything negative about that was when he quoted that after I was already fired. And that's insane and it's ridiculous and insulting. And it makes me think that they just don't even know what story to stick with. They're just like throwing stuff out there, trying to ruin my credibility. Just for the record. Have you ever edited audio to manipulate the context of a, conf- a, a recorded conversation? No, and certainly not in this situation. I've always tried to be very careful to, to take people at the, you know, to keep it in the same vein. Well, I figured we'd at least get that on record. You've never purposely tried to manipulate audio to change the context of someone's conversation. I, I believe, believe that no. to be true, but I figured we might as well at least ask the question out loud. One week after I talked to Jackie, this pops up. Search Internet History GoFundMe page is put together by a local guy named Adam McElhaney, a privacy advocate and a net neutrality supporter, so talking net neutrality before it was cool. Because of the Senate passing resolution number 34, SJ Res 34, I'm not going to get into the mumbo-jumbo of all of it, but it was the beginning of the net neutrality movement to change and turn back a lot of these rules and regulations passed in 2015. Essentially, this Senate bill made it possible for your browsing history to be purchased by online entities or something to that effect. Well, this guy, Adam, started a GoFundMe page to try to start buying local politicians and national politicians' internet history. At the time, it sounded like kind of a cockamamie kind of thing, but in the end of his $10,000 goal, he raised $208,000 in roughly about one week. In 2017, if it was important, if it mattered, if it was interesting, it was on the Stone On Air podcast. This is my conversation with Jason McElhaney. So I don't know much about you, and that was why I reached out to you. You are a privacy activist, a net neutrality advocate is uh, basically all I really know. If you give me kind of a background, what you've been up to and what, um, and, and just a little bit about yourself, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. No, that's, that's pretty much, you know, uh, a good description of what I've been trying to do here recently. Uh, I'm always sharing things with my my friends about privacy and net neutrality issues, and you know it kind of falls on deaf ears because a lot of people just don't understand. You know, having your privacy violated is a lot different than having your car searched, and if it's out of sight, out of mind, people don't generally seem to to care too much about it. So, you know, this GoFundMe um, I created, and it kind of just exploded, it went viral literally overnight. Um, and it's really gotten a lot of attention to this repeal of this uh, FCC rule 
that has um, you know been in, uh, that they um, try to push through really really quickly over the weekend. Um, I think Thursday or Friday the Senate passed it to be repealed, and then on Monday the House repealed it, and then I think President Trump signed off on it yesterday or the day before. Um, so yeah, this has been bringing a lot of attention to something that I think they wanted to kind of keep. Uh, quiet. Well, the idea of this GoFundMe page or a campaign, I should say, is it something that just after the the, the first vote was on March 23rd? Is this right. so, something that you thought of as that was happening? Did you see this vote coming in the future? Is this something you thought about? Is, is this something ideas conceptually you've been kicking around? No, I mean, this ideally, this has been something that I've been kind of kicking around. I wanted to do something that got people's attention to this issue. I wanted to show people that a possible future, a dark future in which your privacy is traded on is coming. And it's been kind of toying around in my head and I had really no idea how to get it out there to people. So I think two days before the, the, uh, the Senate uh, went to vote, I bought the domain name and kind of just started building it over the weekend and then set up a GoFundMe, not really thinking that it was going to take, take off too much. I thought maybe the GoFundMe might, get a few dollars in to keep the website going and stuff, but someone posted it on Reddit and literally overnight it, it exploded. Um, but yeah, I, I, the, the primary idea for the website was, you know, to purchase these, these congressmen and legislators and senators web histories and put them online for everybody to see, to show them what it would be like, what it's like for us to have our privacy violated and taken away from us. And, that's that's kind of the idea that I was going for. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Uh, explain to me, if you don't mind, I know what GoFundMe is. Most people understand what crowdsourcing is. But can you sure. explain the parameters of this per particular campaign, how long it runs, um, how transparent you have to be with however little or however much money you end up having? I mean, you're over 200 grand right now. Uh, what are the, the specific parameters of this GoFundMe campaign? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's checks and balances. I've been in contact with my, I guess, campaign manager at GoFundMe who helps me kind of like, you know, keep up with updates and all that stuff. But no, it can, from what I've been able to ascertain and what I've read, it can go indefinitely, but I don't plan on, you know, running this out for the next 10 years or something. I, I want to do something. I've put out a lot of feelers trying to get some information and hopefully I'll know something, you know, next week or the week before. But um, if I don't get any results, the money goes back to the donors. I've, I've explicitly said that in the GoFundMe and on the website. And if people don't want their donation back of 5 to $10, they can go to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I'm not going to get any of the cash. There won't be any of that. Sure. As, as far as exposing the Internet um, usage of, of – of anybody for that matter, but political um, heads, have, did you do any research on the legalities of this idea? Is it I'm not understanding whether this is even possible or slash maybe even legal? Have you spent much time thinking about that? Yeah, I've been in contact with a with a lawyer helping me maintain being well within the letter of the law with all my requests and what I'm, how I'm trying to get this data. But you know, it wouldn't be it would be illegal, you know, if they hadn't repealed the rule. I mean, the whole point of this rule was that the internet service providers do not want you to, they don't have to let you opt in to their selling of your data. Now they don't have to ask you, do you want to opt in? You're automatically opted in. And a lot of people won't realize that. 
Yeah, I, I guess the whole thing is I have been staying well within the legal confines of the law. I've been in contact with sure. several lawyers and stuff. So all right, well, I, that's I, kind of, I hear you. I understand. I, I am not. Uh, I'll let you go here shortly. I know you got to get going, but I, I am not an expert here at all. I'm not sure. a, in the laws of of uh, privacy and the laws of internet usage. But what I am understanding from a lot of I've done a lot of research over this in the last two days, day and a half. There are a lot of people saying that it is absolutely positively not possible and maybe not necessarily legal to expose, you know, for just a perf- the top example, Paul Ryan's uni- Internet usage. Right. I, I, well, I can't give you the, the legal banter as to why, but that seems to be a very prominent opinion. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, it's, it could be a pom- prominent opinion, and I'm not going to expose myself to any sort of legal issues. I wouldn't necessarily expose any if, if I were to able to get some of this information and it had national security secrets in it, I'm not going to release that. Obviously not. Um, you know, and I would release it well within the parameters of what my, my law team has, you know, helped me with, but it, it is technically possible to get the data. The internet service providers have your account information and they have your IP address and they can attach those two together. I mean, it's how they know how much data you're using each month. If they know where you're going, they can add that to your daily allowance of how much, you know, before they start um, throttling your bandwidth. And this this whole scenario, it may not exist today. There may not be a situation today in which there is a mechanism for me to go out and purchase your data or find your specific IP address, but that data is coming. That day is coming because if the telecom industry didn't want to do this, if they didn't want you to uh, opt out, why repeal this law? That's my whole thing is if they're protecting your privacy and they're all about your privacy and they're, they're going to protect you, why lobby Congress to repeal it? I think, so, I, but I think, I think that the big argument has been that right now that this is not doable, but you're saying your, your, your fear is that it will be, and you'll be ready when that, when that happens. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring some different avenues right now. So I do have some options to get some of the data that is legal. And I'm, that's that's the route I'm going, and I don't want to tip my hand to what that is because I don't want someone to come around and be like, oh, well, now we can stop it because we know how he's getting this information. Now, I may not be able to get some information, and I've made that clear too. Is, but the whole point is I want to get I want to get this out there for people to to see. I want it to get it into the public's eye because I don't think the the government wanted you to know about this. I didn't think the telecom industry doesn't want it you know about this and you know the market has spoken people well, I can have agree, thrown yeah. in i can agree with yeah. you there they don't want people to know any more about it there's no doubt about that adam yeah. McElhaney is uh on my guest here what would you say to criticism that you're being kind of a privacy champion that a campaign like this kind of takes your ideals and your values and completely kind of throws them out when you try to infringe more on others it's kind of hypocritical what would you say to that criticism why criticize me when you can be out there criticizing your government for doing this you should be out there beating down Congress's door, demanding that you have rights and privacy and stop eroding your civil liberties. Why are you attacking me when you should be attacking those who took it away from you? I'm trying to get you aware of it. And if I hadn't done this, you wouldn't be aware of it. And regardless of any situation, of any GoFundMe policies, of anything that happens, any person who's donated, you're fully prepared to to completely re- refund every penny if, if for whatever reason, if they'd like, if they want their money back. 100%. They, everybody can get it all back or they can donate to the EFF. 
I won't get a dime of it. And last but certainly not least, on Volume 1 of a look back at the 2017 Stone On Air podcast, I took the show live to Atlanta to Centennial Park at the Sweetwater 420 Festival. Thank you to everybody who helped make that become possible. The first credentialed event that I had as a standalone podcast, so it did certainly mean a lot to me. And I'm sure I'll mess up the name again because I did it all day that day. Cecily Friday Shamim from the Tennessee Cannabis Coalition joined me on the weekend of Record Store Day, Earth Day, and the 420 Celebration. Um, well, I, I, I actually have a condition that, um, according to research, has been linked to an endocannabinoid deficiency. I literally do not have enough endogenous cannabinoids in my body. Um, and so I've, I've, I've suffered, uh, you know, for years dealing with uh, trying to deal with it from a traditional Western uh, medical perspective, you know, dealing with it with pharmaceuticals uh, to no avail. Um, and I found that cannabis worked. And um, I started uh, several years ago, I started lobbying. Um, uh, I went to the first lobby day on the Hill for uh, uh, cannabis legislation in Tennessee. And I lobbied with, uh, I walked the halls and met with legislators with a woman by the name of Gail Grower who had a granddaughter with, uh, that had intractable seizures. And as you know, uh, cannabis, uh, specifically high CBD uh, cannabis, CBD is a cannabinoid in cannabis, uh, has been shown to be incredibly helpful for people with seizure disorders. Um, and so we, we, we pushed for CBD only that first year that I lobbied, uh, and between that first and second se uh, legislative session, um, uh, Gail Grower, her granddaughter Chloe died um, from her seizure disorder, and, and I just felt like that was just completely unacceptable because we knew that if she was in a couple states away, uh, if she was in a legal state, that she'd still be alive and she'd be thriving today. And, and that's what we're finding with, with uh, cannabis being used as a medication is that in states where it's legal, people are able to get off a significant number, if not all, of the pharmaceuticals they're on, and they're able to switch to cannabis for numerous conditions, particularly with these seizure disorders. Um, when, when you have these seizure disorders, uh, they, they use a, a number of drugs, uh, heavy narcotics, benzodiazepines, um, set, you know, sedatives and sure. and these basically render people uh, just unable to function um, and, and, and especially for children developmentally it's, it's incredibly disabling for children with seizure disorders to be on all these pharmaceuticals and what we're finding is they're able to get off most if not all of those pharmaceuticals and they're able to develop that they're able to get through these developmental nor uh, milestones normally and and they're able to function uh, as opposed to being on all these dangerous and toxic pharmaceuticals. Sure. Um, we're, we're finding the same thing with vets. Uh, you know, a lot of vets are coming back uh, to the states with PTSD, and they literally have come up with a name uh, for what the VA gives them when they come back. It's called the comeback cocktail. And, and some of these vets are on 10, 20, 30 different medications a day, and they're not able to function. Um, and it's not dealing with the, 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 the root problems that, that, that they're having. And, it's, and, and so a lot of these vets that are moving to legal states, uh, you know, and, and getting on cannabis, they're, 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 the same thing is happening. They're able to get off most, if not all, the pharmaceuticals. They're able to live a productive, uh, functional life as opposed to the one that, that, you know, they're left with with all the drugs that the VA is giving 
Tennessee Cannabis Coalition, uh, at ten, Tennessee Can Coalition on Facebook, do you guys focus majority on the medical aspect, or is it a recreational slash de- decriminalization? Um, do, you do, do you dabble in all of it? Or? We, we, we spend, our primary focus is to educate lawmakers and the public about the public safety and health uh, data specific to cannabis. Now, as far as we're concerned, all cannabis use is medicinal. We all have an endocannabinoid system. We are all hardwired for cannabis. We make our own endogenous cannabinoids. So, you know, this plant is, is, is you know, a, a critical part of our wellness, and you know, by and large. And so it's a, it should be our natural natural right to access this plant. So as far as that goes, yeah, I mean, you know, there are a lot of arguments about medical versus recreational. And, and you know, we, we hear legislators argue that, oh, well, medical is just a slippery slope yeah. to try to get it recreational. But yeah. when you look at the history of prohibition and, and when you start doing your homework about this, there simply was never a justification for these laws in the first place. So. Uh, you know, as far as that goes, there's really not there's really not a difference because any kind of cat, cannabis use, um, you know, can provide a certain level of wellness for people that that they aren't going to find with anything else. Well, this is outside of the state of Tennessee, clearly, but there's now upwards of I don't know what seven states with recreational um, mm-hmm. legalization. Can you tell me a little bit about the federal laws that I only know very little bit about that is that is prohibiting these now legal state legal businesses? from being able to take out a loan, for instance, from a bank because of uh, some kind of federal laws. I didn't know anything about it until I went out to Denver and started talking mm-hmm. to some of these people. And I, and the way they're set up now, it's almost more dangerous than actual drug dealing under, you know, on the streets. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, unfortunately, because of uh, the disconnect between state and federal law on this issue, um, these cannabis businesses are having to operate in cash only, which provides a significant security risk for these businesses. Um, You know, the FDIC is federally regulated. So anytime you're dealing with a bank that, that, you know, is a factor. So one of the things that's happening right now at the federal level is uh, just this year, there was a cannabis caucus formed by several senators uh, at the federal level. And they're working on, there is legislation that they have introduced to try to rectify and resolve some of these issues between the state and the federal level with regards to banking and cannabis businesses. Because, yeah, that's a major, major factor for anybody that's operating a cannabis business in a legal state. Um, so so they're, they're, they're trying to move forward on this. But unfortunately, um, a lot of the momentum that was gained during the Obama administration has uh, been curtailed as a as a, as a result of the Trump administration coming into power and them appointing uh, very uh, staunch prohibitionists such as Jeff Sessions to be the Attorney General. Yeah, from um, this Alabama. is a man. Yeah, this is a man that is incredibly anti-cannabis. He once said that he was okay with the KK until he found out that they smoke pot. So, uh, you know, not only is there some deep-rooted racism there, there's also uh, some some really profound ignorance when it comes to this plant, um, when it comes to Jeff Sessions. So it's going to be a really hard road in terms of, uh, you know, trying to get um, progress on this issue uh, right now as the, as the uh, the current system exists at the federal level. Uh, we do have we do have legislators that are getting on board and they're waking up and, and getting educated to uh, you know the public health and public data, safety data specific to cannabis because we're getting a lot of positive data coming out of legal states. Um, but it's gonna you know with 
with the exi existing administration, it's going to be difficult to get a lot of progress made on this issue. So the states are going to have to lead on it. They're going to have to continue to lead on it. Cecily is the Tennessee Cannabis Coalition Executive Director and Founder. I'll let you get back to your day. It's Earth Day. It's uh, Record Store Day. It's a fun weekend all the way around. I appreciate your time. One thing I just I was reading from this article from USA Today earlier about the headline was what happens if you smoke marijuana every day and then it goes on <laughs> and on about and i mean the advocates generally aren't for smoking marijuana every single day but one of the um one of the quotes here from one of the just kind of paraphrase uh, experts are likely to tell you that it's too early to define marijuana's effect and, and its effectiveness on, in the in a medical um capacity you clearly don't believe that there's that that's true and i don't we've either. yeah we've had medical cannabis in the united states for 20 years now. I mean, you got to realize that, that California started their medical cannabis program in the early 90s. So we know that, you know, as far as long-term consequences, we, we just don't see the kind of negative consequences with cannabis that we do with, with pharmaceuticals. And, and by and large, it's significantly safer than most of the pharmaceuticals, most of the over-counter drugs that you can get at a grocery yep. store. Um, so. You know that really that, that really doesn't hold water. We've got there's there's tens of thousands of, of peer-reviewed research studies on cannabis, um, and you don't have that kind of uh, wealth of, of research on any any pharmaceutical drug in the United States. So that that you know that that is that that's simply not true. Now 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 having said that, there's still a lot more research that needs to be done. But the problem is is that because Funding. of the well, the structure, the way in which you you have to go through the DEA and FDA um, and, and several bureaucratic institutions in order to get research approved at the federal level, it's incredibly difficult to research cannabis in the United States. So we're relying on a lot of data from countries like Israel and, and countries in Europe that are actually taking the time and, and, and they don't have all the roadblocks that we do to, to researching this plant. And that's all for volume one of a look back at the Stone On Air podcast for 2017. I appreciate you guys checking it out. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I enjoyed making it. I, I enjoyed listening to those conversations again, especially with Wayne White and Cecily and uh, Jackie, Adam, all of them. And I'll have plenty more in volume two, which will be coming out in the middle of the first week of January. I apologize for the delay, but it, the Christmas week, I need some damn time off. And I just decided to do that. I got a three-day weekend over the Christmas weekend. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? Nothing other than have fun and enjoy myself with my friends and family and not work and edit and all that stuff. And so it did delay it, and I, I apologize for that, but uh, I appreciate your patience. Volume 2 coming here shortly, or by this point, it might already be sitting there waiting for you in your queue. You guys are the best. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I certainly appreciate it. If anybody asks where did that cat go, just make sure and tell them that I am gone.